When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel, we're your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Seth Partnow, director of North American Sports for StatsBomb, writer for The Athletic, author of The Midrange Theory, of course does great podcasts as well, and we go through the playoffs so far. First round, some of the ripple effects, unfortunately we recorded this right after the disappointing De'Aaron Fox news, so we talked about that, that's actually what we begin with, and we get into some big picture stuff as well, officiating team building and everything else. I I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you do too. Brought to you by FanDuel. You can go to fanduel.com slash Boston and you get a $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place your first $5 bet. You can check that out. Of course, talk about it a lot more later. But first, let's talk to Seth. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It has been a minute. It has. And I mean, unfortunately, I mean, I guess it's good that this came out before we started recording because it would have changed things. But we're minutes after the news that De'Aaron Fox has a fractured index finger on his left hand and he's listed as doubtful for game five. And it sucks. I mean, injuries in general are bad. We've already seen them shape playoff series this year. And we don't know exactly how it's going to shape this one, but the Kings have been awesome so far. Yeah, it really is too bad. Um, I'm not sure there's much else to say beyond that. Because it sucks. It's dumb. It, 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 uh, I think that the series was probably over in six anyway. So. I, 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 Nate and I talked about it last night, and I said that I thought, you know, knowing what, of course, what we knew then that I thought the the Kings were still the favorites for it, just because home court advantage, they played well, all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's totally a credible argument to go the other way. This, I mean, because there's another part of it, so it sounds like the injury happened about five minutes to go. We don't have all the specifics, but I noticed during the game, I thought it was fatigue, because he had played a lot of minutes and everything else, that Fox wasn't, he wasn't pushing as hard towards the end, wasn't getting as good of shots and, and, yeah, they were falling in at a lower rate than he usually does as well, but it was more the quality of the shot. And it's entirely possible, if not probable, that having a broken finger made those things harder. I think there was some fatigue also. I, I agree with you, but I think there was also, even, like, when he didn't, the just, you know, the, maybe it's uh, seeing what I'm expecting to see, but once that, that sort of fatigue-looking thing started to happen, like, it wasn't just when he had the ball. It was just the, the 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 burst was not quite the same the last couple of minutes, and it's understandable because he uh, 
had to do a whole lot to, to keep them in that game. He did. And, I mean, Fox, hopefully he gets a lot more playoff reps this year to burnish it, but he has been phenomenal during these four games. And, you know, there's always this, not only the element of, like, the clutch players of the year, you've done great work on this, you know, like, that doesn't always persist year after year, so you appreciate it while you have it. But also, young teams, teams that don't have a ton of playoff experience, don't generally do that well in their first postseason experience. And I think whether the Kings won or lost the series, they've done extremely well. No, I think that's right. I think that uh, after looking unplayable for the first couple of games of the series, uh, Keegan Murray has started to do some things too, and that's that's obviously a positive sign. Uh, the biggest worry for the Kings, if we're going to go big picture, is that, um, and this is part of the reason why I think it's done in six, is uh, I think it's, I mean, this was a bad matchup to begin with, but I think that, uh, the Warriors have largely figured Sabonis out, and that's just too big a part of Sacramento's overall game. To the point where it, it, this, is, this sounds crazy, but there's been all times in the series where the Kings have looked better with Alex Len on the floor. Yeah, I mean, part of that is that the the offense flows really differently. Like, you, and and I mean, with the it's it's also like that the Warriors. I noticed this in game one. They had some very specific things they were fixating on and, and like, you know, the some of the stuff with Herder in particular and then Sabonis. And they have really good personnel. They, you know, Looney doesn't bite on pump fakes because he doesn't really jump in the first place. And Sabonis can have some good performances. But yeah, and, and I mean, he actually has been much better defensively than I anticipated. But in the overall sense, I, I think that, you know, as you know, figured out is it's it's sort of a continuum. It's not like an all or nothing proposition with most guys. But I agree that he doesn't have as much positives to add at this point in the series. Yeah, I mean, I think that they've largely shut down his scoring, it seems like. Um I think they've they've they're willing to concede some of the DHO game just by saying, "All right, we're going to play off you, dare you to shoot jump shots, and uh, know that you can't you you don't want to finish with your right, both because you're left-handed and because you're playing with a broken thumb." Uh, and and it's just it's been not pretty when he's trying to power his way inside. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and and the fractured thumb. I mean, it, it is such an interesting element when we talk about how healthy the Kings have been this season is like, well, part of the reason they were healthy is because DeMontis Votis just played through an injury that a lot of guys, we don't know the specific nuances of his fracture versus other fractures, but like it is, it is a dynamic worth mentioning. For sure. One of the other uh, things that I've heartily enjoyed about Warriors Kings, and, and you could attribute this to Mike Brown being a former Warriors assistant, but also just Mike Brown and his coaching staff doing a really good job is Sacramento having a fundamental understanding of where their competitive advantages are in the series, and they've just kept on pushing those, you know, running not only after misses, but often after makes where, like, where the person was out of the play, competing on defense, attacking the Warriors' weak points. Like, Keegan Murray, part of how we got off was because they had Jordan Poole on him in that adapted starting lineup. And I've loved that part. Mike Brown's done a wonderful job all year. wholly deserving coach of the year and i've loved those elements of his tactical game in the series yeah i agree with that i i I will say that um the one place where especially that desire to play fast at all times did not quite work for the kings was certainly the 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 opening i would say quarter and a half of game three which really i think um i i don't know about if you felt this way but i i felt that that was almost the pivotal game of the series um 
basically once uh, Draymond got suspended, but they were in a rush in that game as opposed to playing quickly, playing yeah. fast. Being quick, and, but don't hurry, the old John yeah. Wooden quote. Yeah, yeah I agree with were, that. That's a great point. Hurry. And also, to, by by the way, to that point, uh, credit to the Warriors for that. And I actually was pretty disappointed with uh, the Warriors' defense for most of Game Four, insofar as they didn't they didn't really pressure Sacramento the same way and allowed Sacramento to play fast but not in a hurry. Whereas in Game Three, I think that they, uh, I mean, the Kings were amped up. They knew it was a pressure situation. The crowd was noisy and probably got them like amped up a little bit too. But the Warriors were were, were getting into the ball. Uh, in game three in a way that they that they haven't they didn't in games one and two and they didn't for most of game four frankly yeah there there were some defensive foibles there I think part of that is also even though um the impact of Draymond you know coming off the bench was I think overstating he played 31 minutes he played pretty much as normal as there but what it did do was it changed some of the defensive assignments and rotations and like it's harder to keep up that pressure when you're starting Curry and Clay and Poole together. For sure. Do you think that I mean so it's I've been just the way that things happen it, the, having these two more wide open series in the West unfortunately in some ways due to Kawhi Leonard's injury being on the same side of the bracket meaning them and Grizzlies Lakers are there any of those series that you see as like as, you know, because you have to assume that the team that makes it out is playing reasonably well, they're reasonably healthy. Are there any of those potential like four series that are you like you think more of like a cakewalk or to me, they all seem at least fairly competitive? Um, I mean, I think it, the, the, the Suns Clippers series sort of depends on if Kawhi can play or not the rest of the series if he can't. Oh, no, I, I was referring to whoever oh. makes it out of Grizzlies, Lakers, oh, Warriors, see, and Kings. Because those that's the next round because the NBA doesn't receive. Right. Um, man, I don't know. Um, I, I, th- I think that Lakers, uh, Warriors is, is a not great matchup for the Lakers. It's my, my instant impression. Other than that, like I think any possible combination would be a uh, would be an intriguing series. Definitely intriguing. Uh, I, there were some conversations in the media room yesterday about what a Kings-Grizzlies series would look like. And, and hopefully, should that come to pass, De'Aaron Fox and John Moran are both doing well enough with their hand issues that we're getting them at as close to 100% as they could be. But Memphis not having their full front court, like I think that that shifts both of their potential second-round series, should they make it. I mean, they just got handled pretty well by the Lakers, even though job went for 40 and 40 plus, I think it was 42 and 16 or something like that. But the, like, I mean, I'm, I, I still think that Memphis is a dangerous team, but I think that being without Adams and Clark and just all the other, all the cascades from that, I think it could end up being a different challenge against the Warriors of the Kings. Should they make it through than it has been against the Lakers? Uh, certainly against the Warriors, Brandon Clark is a big miss, just like he is against the Lakers. But uh, against the Kings, I think it's a little more straightforward. I don't I like not that it's easy. It's just the 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 matchup weirdness isn't quite the same. Uh, they they probably missed Stephen Adams. Um, just you know, a big body on Sabonis, but. Uh, Tillman is a uh, is a reasonable replacement in that slot. I don't know how much you'd really want to have Jaron Jackson. Certainly for the fir- the the first bits of games guarding Sabonis, that, <laughs> that seems like a that seems like a uh, recipe for for uh, you know the Jaron Jackson annual foul trouble game. It certainly does, and uh, yeah, I, I think all the different permutations of those four teams are, are are notable in their own way, and it also like I mean. 
one of those teams is going to make it out and they're going to be at least intriguing in the conference finals. And I mean, it's it sucks that this is the way it happened, but I, I do think that we're barreling towards a Nuggets Sun series, which I'm excited about. Like I didn't, you know, I had been lower on the Clippers because of the Paul George injury and everything else. But I, so, I mean, Nate and I have talked a lot about Suns Clippers at different moments, especially when it was healthier. One of my takeaways from the series has just been I'm lower on the Suns as a championship team. That doesn't necessarily mean round by round because their functional depth. I'm just so concerned about it. Have you seen the same kind of thing during the first week of first week plus of action? Absolutely. Um, I think that there was a little bit of of sort of uh, false dominance in like, well, when they have their guys, if you look at who the Suns played in the games where Durant was available, um, I think I think they played. Um, I I didn't check again after the play in, but they played the only game. Te- they only played two games against teams that made this top six in either conference, and those were both against the Nuggets, with the Nuggets sitting everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now that they're coming up against that that sort of first like playoff level test you do see where some of the cracks are like you see that they are going to have to score hard buckets over and over and over again to uh to to advance now that's the theory of their team so you know we'll go that way also just the sheer necessity to rely so heavily on their best players and that i mean you think about i mean even with the fox injury you think about all the different things that could happen whether that's just a foul trouble or a tweaked ankle that you have to miss a game or two and they're so so dependent on the rest players i mean tory craig has been fabulous in the series like they've need and they've needed that sorely because then you'd have to if, if he wasn't doing that then you'd have to be rolling the dice on shamit and akogi and a couple of their other guy more and yeah like a healthy campaign would would help things a little bit but he doesn't fundamentally transform their rotation I don't think that's not something that I that has really been revealed in the first round, though. I mean, we that's we we've known that since the trade deadline. Agreed, agreed. And but it, it does come into more stark focus, I would say, when you get into these circumstances. And like, I mean, there is the element of like Styles makes fights and getting getting the Nuggets into a series where they have to defend differently will be would be very interesting. And we we don't need to count all those chickens, but like. Both, I think, in some ways, both of those teams will take the other out of their comfort zone, which I'm excited to see. Should it happen? Hey, definitely. Um, I think that uh, really uh, an X factor in that potential series is is uh, just how good Michael Porter Jr. has been uh, mm-hmm. in the playoffs so far. Yeah, he's he's been really impressive. And I mean, I, I was that game three where the he did so well in the non Jokic minutes and was just getting good shots and looked more confident with the ball in his hands. Something we haven't seen as much during his. Denver tenure. I mean, even going back to when he was in college, he was more of a high school MPJ thing. He's been great. No, I, and I think you've picked up on the thing. Like, def- first of all, he's been better defensively. I don't sure. know. If, I'm not sure we're going to go so far as to say he's been good. He hasn't been <laughs> better. <laughs> like Devin Booker has been great defensively. Michael Porter Jr. has been has been serviceable, which is still a big upgrade. Um, but as you say, like you know, two years ago when the Nuggets were at their best, um, he was primarily a baseline player, like corner spot ups, cuts along the baseline offensive rebounding and when he had to come more to the top of the floor more to the middle of the floor when jamal murray got hurt he struggled in that role um that's not the case in in what we're seeing now that he's playing top of the floor middle of the floor do doing well with the ball in his hands whether it's it's more often creating for himself but still those were not spots that he was was able to navigate well you know as recently as two years ago 
it also, yeah, it gives Denver's offense another dynamic and him being viable defensively. And, and I would think that given the kind of the personnel stuff and, and how much they switch and everything else will be important. Like it, it's sort of different against the Suns, you know, like having your elements because, because of the way they function offensively. Like, I don't think that MPJ would be under as much strain defensively as long as Aaron Gordon stays healthy and out of foul trouble. No, I think that's right. Um, I mean, the, the question of, of who do you put on? I mean, I guess you, the, the matchups are sort of, uh, you know, they, 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 they write themselves in that you sort of hide MPJ on, on whoever the fourth guy is and everyone else just plays straight up, right? I think so. I mean, you'd love to have kind of more places to hide, but they don't really, you don't really do that. And I cracked up, I, did, I, I saw somebody refer to the Suns as like the analytics darling team. And I'm like, Huh? <laughs> like, I, right. think, I mean, I mean, you've written well about how the mid range has been honed into this very different thing, and the Suns are maybe the best encapsulation. You could also argue the previous iteration of the Nets were, but that, or before that, the uh, the previous iteration of the Warriors, the KD Warriors. Sure, yeah. For for whatever reason, Kevin Durant is on a lot of those teams. I wonder why that yeah. why that hmm. could be the case. Hmm. Hmm. But that doesn't. I mean, I would. If, you know, you've. Not not only with your experience, but with your excellent book. Like you've done by that, if we're gonna call a team an analytics star, like analytics, I think it's gonna be they get like if they do the math problem. Probably stuff on defense would probably be the closest there, and then they get to the basket foul a lot, and then maybe they hit threes at a high rate. Like, do you think that would be like a team that fits that bill is more 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 the analytics darling than the Suns would be? I don't I don't really know what what that even means anymore. That's a fair um, point. Because I, I think that that this is something that been that's been written about a fair amount recently. Uh, Zach Cram at the Ringer did a really good piece on it, and I've written about it a little bit. Is like you don't you don't uh, shot structure your way to a good offense anymore. There was a time when like when teams were still learning that oh three pointer is good. That basically you could you could sort of math hack your way into a top ten offense, uh, and like many of those Houston teams did. But that's just that that relationship between sort of shot quality you know broadly speaking shot quality and offensive output has largely diminished um insofar as it's much it is it's it's now much more about like the better offensive teams take shots their guys can make regardless of whether they're the theoretically best shots so it's a talent thing more than a than a structure thing so in that regard sure i mean you know uh, uh phoenix has two wherever you want to put uh booker top 12 i mean is that i mean uh, like uh, as uh, constantly like looking at where guys are in the firmament for the purpose of like player tiers and stuff like that uh devin booker is is on track for a pretty big rise right now so yeah maybe top two top 12 players and then another sort of you know elite on his day shot creator and chris paul if the, you want to call that an analytics darling sure but other than that i don't i don't really know who you who you'd mean the idea of the low hanging fruit being gone and that just changing changing what works is so fascinating to me and I think it's right I think I think it's spot on and I, and I don't know I don't think that's the reason why some of these teams are succeeding a little bit differently like I mean Sacramento's offense functions differently from from other teams and, and I mean that is praise uh, of course they were the best offense in the league this year and we'll see how all that stuff 
goes during the playoffs. Like that'll be, you know, like the idea when we've seen this drift, the difference between playoffs and the regular season. And, and a lot of that can also tie in. Yeah. I mean, you have the, the talent changing, you know, who is, who played the, you have the specific adjustments, which is part of what you and I love so much about the playoffs. But then another part of this, and I thought this was particularly salient during game four of Warriors Kings. I liked the analogy that you made. You called it, you said it was like the weather where, Consistency for officiating is important. It's exceedingly important. But what you're being consistent about, where those lines are, is another extremely central consideration. And one of those is like, you know, just because you call it down the line, you call it even in terms of like contact around the basket, whether you're saying a lot or a little or in the middle is okay. That makes a huge difference, not only in terms of how the teams play, but in terms of who benefits and who is hurt by that by that regime? Right, uh, and and that's not. There's nothing nefarious about that. It's just a you know a, there there are there are teams. I mean, I think the uh, you know uh, there's any number of series where we can take a look at that. Like I think the Heat Bucks series is a good example where like the grimier the series is allowed to be, uh, that's sort of advantage for the less talented, very willing to play physical, very willing to flop around Heat. That's not a it's not a value judgment. That's that's a statement of fact. Um, that that you know there are, that d- depending on how where that line is, and it changes game to game. And I think it's fine. It changes game to game. I think that's part of what makes the playoff playoffs interesting. But also, like you have three different dudes on it, or three different people on three different days, or or on on, on different days. So naturally, it's going to be just a little bit different game to game. There's going to be a different vibe, a different mood. I think that. The level of physicality, the level of jawing, the level of everything you allow, like sort of depends on on uh, for better or worse. So, like I think that the level of jawing uh, uh, that had happened um, probably contributed uh, almost, you know, well over half of the reason why Dylan Brooks got a flagrant too. Uh, like I, I was, I I did radio uh, for, on Sirius earlier today, and someone asked me about that. And it's like, hey, look, if, if Tyus Jones had like done that to Dennis Schroeder, it's a common foul, and we're when we keep it moving right but because it's dylan brooks on lebron um there's like at least the imputation of a certain degree of intent which like is, is so I, i've gotten a far field of the question but yeah that's that, that's something that that does you know that's that's just a fact and again like you know some teams are if you use the football analogy like some teams are great on turf and if it's rainy and muddy they're gonna struggle and that's just you know you you deal with that and like oh we were unlucky well no you built a team that that is is uh is uh vulnerable to those things or on the other hand it's like hey we got lucky yeah you got lucky but you built a team that's well that's that's well equipped to take advantage of that kind of luck and that you know that's part of why we play the games that's that's one of the other like the variance in in who wins a basketball game isn't just shooting luck a lot of it is that as well it is that as well and you think about how that how that impacts things throughout i mean another one of those i go back to those Cavs warriors series of the years and i do not mean this as a criticism but cleveland more clearly understood than many teams that you can get away with a different level of grabbing and holding in the postseason and if they're not going to call as much or they're not going to call everything and there is a way to phrase to phrase that as like, oh, it's about it's like, no, it's just the way things are, you know, I, and that's why I like the idea of weather as like understanding the circumstances that you're dealing with, whether those are the more pervasive ones, like more contact just generally being loud or specific ones with an officiating crew or just how things go. That is so important to your success. 
I would suggest that's a lesson the Warriors themselves have learned well. I think part of it is uh, if you have if you are the smaller team, generally speaking, you're allowed a certain liberties with the larger team. I think that's I think that's a uh, a, a truism. Sure. And but the degree to which that goes, but like the Warriors have been, and this is by the way, this is again not saying it's illegitimate because a player like Sabonis dishes it out a lot too. Uh, and this is you know this is oftentimes a a uh, a observation bordering on or well into the territory of complaint from Bucks fans about the way Giannis is officiated. Um, but it's it it you know you you take the the Warriors have learned that lesson well, and they are you know being extremely physical with Sabonis uh, and to to their you know to their benefit. And um, I think Mike Brown hit on this after the game. It's like hey, you see how the game is being called. Don't do the same thing and expect the whistle. They haven't blown the last six times down the court either. Like exactly. adjust and figure something else out. Exactly. And it's been, I mean, I would say generally true in the NBA this season that they're calling more stuff on the perimeter than they are in the interior. I, you, we can have discussions about whether that's a good or a bad thing for the league and for the sport, but that is generally the way that it's gone. And I'm not particularly surprised to see a continuation, if not a slight increase in that general bet. Yep. No, I agree with that. I mean, and again, this is is the game of like, is it a change in how the game is officiated, or is it a change in how the game is played and how how the game is played in the playoffs interacts differently with the officiating? That I think some of both. Like, I think we've seen like the 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 occasional regular season game that has a quote unquote playoff atmosphere. Um, to my mind, if the refs are doing well, they kind of like, all right, well, this is what we're doing tonight then. And they don't, they, they kind of don't try to rein it in by, you know, I think that, that, uh, oh, this, the, it's getting a little physical here. We got to start, we got to, we got to rein it back, whether it's calling technicals, whether it's bringing teams together, whether it's calling touch fouls, what have you. Um, I, I think it's sort of appropriate to let the thing flow a little bit. And if I had, I think the, the, the criticism I would have of officiating in these playoffs, aside from the um, completely amorphous standards around what it is and is not various levels of, of flagrant, yes. why, or, why or why not like those rules are in place. I think that um, I've complained about sort of the formalist nature. Well, he hit him in the groin. Therefore, it's just like okay. Well, I I don't think the formalist approach is right. But you're telling me that 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 they, that happened because of the formalist approach. Okay, if that's where we're going to be, then I just don't think that's right. I think that um like it just again not to look at specific incidents, but of the Brooks, Harden, and Embiid incidents, the fact that the that the to my mind the worst least basketball play, most outside the lines, most uh, um you know, worthy of ejection play wasn't is, is weird to me. I had a very similar thought. I mean, cause, cause with the Embiid play and, and at that point we had the immediate context of, of Draymond Green's. And of course there were different reasons why Draymond Green was suspended. The ejection is, is kind of in some ways more parallel in it's, it's a 100% non-basketball play. And I think emphasizing whether the, like, so, I mean, I can't say Joel Embiid had the specific intent, you know, there's going to be two lawyers talking of like hitting, hitting him in the ground, but he definitely had the like general intent of like moving his foot in that area. And if it hits something, it hits something. I don't even care about the, like, like he's on the ground and he kicked. 
Yeah. Like, like I don't know. It's this is this is maybe me watching too much soccer. Oh, but that's a, oh well. The 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 the, the, the uh, analyst in the, in the the broadcast team is like, well, that's just silly, and he's got to go for that. Is sort of mm-hmm. you know maybe there's the standard yeah, like, is different between the sports, but like I think that the, the flagrant system and the red and yellow card system is not like the, the parallels are reasonable. Like the things that are a straight red card and the things that should be a flagrant two are. Uh, you know, aside from like, there's no equivalent of like <laughs> an egregious goaltending is not a is not a flagrant too. The same way as like an intentional handball might be uh, in, in in soccer, but still, um, I think that there are reasonable parallels there, and I think that's a that like. You know, thing happened. The guy got hit in an unfortunate spot. Maybe there was a little too much force used, but we're not going to we're not going to judge wholly on whether it hit like this. You know, this this foot circular area of the body or not. Well, and, and that's why I use the phrase like specific intent. Is it's like especially if it's a basketball play. Like even if yeah, push offs aren't my favorite part of basketball, but like push offs are a part of basketball. Hitting the wrong spot on a push where it's pretty clear that what you were what you were trying to do is that not trying to like be sneaky and also hit them in the groin like i think you give more latitude in those circumstances because it's it, again intent intent does matter like i think that it but it's not you know like nothing is singularly dispositive other than you could maybe argue in certain cases risk for injury yeah, but, I, so I think so to go go beyond that, I think like if if like that little that 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 forearm shiver from Harden like catches Royce O'Neal on the side, not only is it not a flagrant two, I don't even think it's I don't even think it's gets gets called a foul. Correct. I, I think you're 100 percent right. And so yeah, like for me, that being an ejection, and and it wouldn't surprise me if there was some sort of discussion. I mean, even if there wasn't anything from the league office, just from between the refs, of like ah, you know, we did we did this thing, like maybe we should think about it differently. But the problem is there well, doesn't. Can I, can I stop you there? By the sure. way, this this is the, this is maybe the, the meta conversation, and I, I like we're, we may have already spent too much time talking about refs. But uh, but like, what's the what's the point of what are we trying? To, what is the refereeing to do do for? What is the purpose of the flagrant foul rules? Is it to keep the game safe, keep it moving, or is it to dole out punishment and retribution? I think we're veering way into the second. It's like, oh, that was a bad thing he did, and we got to punish him. Versus, like, you know, he, that was a dangerous thing he did. That was a that was an unnecessary thing. That was a like we need to cur- we need to curb this behavior. And I think that's again why, yeah. like, you know, if you're on the ground and you're just kicking up, you're not doing anything basketball related. Like that is quote unquote worse. That is a behavior you want to curb yeah. more. If you, if that's the part of punishment that I think makes sense is the like, and that's the the whole idea behind the improperly executed like well i mean mostly improperly executed like taking some of the offensive foul baiting out is the idea of like if you're deviating from your shot path that is something that we don't want in the game and then if it's something other than that it's like to me it needs to rise in terms of the actual impact in order for it to be sufficient for an ejection i think that's all i really want to say on it Plenty more to discuss with Seth Partnow, but first a message from FanDuel. Grand slams, no-hitters, and double plays are back, and there is no better place to get in on the MLB action than FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook and official partner of Major League Baseball, and new customers in Massachusetts can get in on the action with $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when they place their first $5 bet. What you do is you sign up at FanDuel.com slash Boston, B-O-S-T-O-N, Finally, you can bet all your favorite sports from the money line to the point spreads, the player props, and more. And FanDuel, of course, has a lot of great basketball options, which are probably 
more, not more of interest, but of interest to this crowd. There's a lot of cross-pollination and hockey playoffs are going on too. So a lot of great things that you can check out there. Player props in particular are a lot of fun. So bet now on an app that's safe, secure, and easy to use. Don't miss your chance to get $200 in bonus bets, win or lose. So go to FanDuel.com slash Boston and make every moment more. And FanDuel, official partner of Major League Baseball. Must be 21 and over and present in Massachusetts. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Hope is here. Gamblinghelplinema.org or call 1-800-327-5050 for 24-7 support. Play it smart from the start. GameSenseMA.com or 1-800-GAM-1234. Let's talk about my favorite challenge of the postseason so far. Let's go. Uh, Quinn Snyder challenging uh, the, 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 off, the 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 defensive foul call on Marcus Smart's end of half three uh, yesterday. The, I, so cool. you, the idea being, yeah, because you and I had a you and I had a GTR conversation about this kind of in the moment. I mean, because it, it's it's really interesting on the idea of it depends on how viable the thought of an offensive foul is there. And I, so I, I think it's definitely worth discussing, but I was less enthusiastic about it than you because I didn't think there was really, I don't think Marcus Smart kicked forward enough to make that more than a marginal chance. How much of a chance do you need if you're going to take three points off the board? That's the thing. I think we like, I think that, that this is sort of um, the, well, you got to save your challenge no matter what comes from a similar school of thought to the got to go for quick, go for two and extend the game. It's like these eventualities and not like, well, or I mean, a situation like, let, let me ask this. Is there ever a situation where let's put it this way that a call goes against you at the end of the game? Would you rather have the challenge or you would you rather the score be two points more in your favor? Exactly. It's a great point. And I mean, I think you brought up the idea, you brought up one idea and I want to bring up another one, which is the preemptively pulling a player in foul trouble in in a way ensuring the outcome that you're trying to avoid of like the the what you're what you're saving them for is potentially way less valuable than than the what you could be getting right now. Yeah, I think that 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 JB Berkerstaff has has come under a, um an unfair amount of criticism. That doesn't say he's been he's been blameless, but saying that like he's been outcoached by Tom Thibodeau. Um like they're playing poker and, and Tibbs has five cards in his hand and Bickerstaff has three just from a, a roster standpoint. Like all year we've talked about how Cleveland doesn't have a small forward and they have no depth. And now they're in the playoffs and they're in, and a lot of their problems are they don't have a small forward and they have no depth. And you know, if you're you, you have to play two bigs and two small guards, and if you're not able to rebound out of that, what is your, what, what is your mechanism for fixing that? Is that a coaching thing or is that, Hey, Jared Allen's got to play better. Hey, Donovan Mitchell's got to play better. Hey, uh, uh, Evan Mobley has got to get got to. He, I mean, he Evan Mobley frankly struggled defensively down the stretch of of Game Four. I think um, R.J. Barrett had a number of of a great deal of success, you know, attacking Mobley as the help defender. And if like you think you're a if you think Evan Mobley is like your future all, all like your future defensive player of the year guy, okay, uh, R.J. Barrett going to his weak hand against him. 
you you have to you you have to expect better outcomes than Cleveland got. That's not coaching. That's 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 your your best players probably in part because they their lack of playoff experience, like not performing. Uh, you know, Donovan Mitchell has plenty of playoff experience, but also not performing and and sort of some of the weaknesses in Mitchell's playoff game that I've uh, I think I've noted at length in the past <laughs> in terms of his of his uh, willingness to uh, to to go to hero ball uh, as a first, second, and fourth option. Um, but all that, all that preamble aside, uh, a legitimate, very legitimate, very, uh, costly, I would say is like sitting Darius Garland with quote foul trouble. First of all, guards don't foul out unless you're like Patrick Beverly guards don't foul out. So, and second of all, like we saw in the third quarter and the way that, that Mitchell has been playing the Cavs offense with Garland initiating versus Mitchell initiating is night and day right now. And if you're just going to, well, he's got fouls. I have to sit him on the bench. Like who could, that's, that's an inviolable rule that nobody could break. That's just, that's, that's, that is, you know, even in the regular, like even from the regular season, doing that is just a useful, like, all right, let's keep the minutes down doing this in the playoffs. You know, you have to consider why are we doing this? And it's not worth it. Like Gares Garland should be playing 42 minutes a night. Wholeheartedly agree. And the uh, guards not fouling out is such a such an important thing to remember. And what you're scared of is, I mean, I, I, I hammered on Taylor Jenkins on the live show day and I were doing this for the lineup that he played at the end of the first quarter. And they, you know, I'm not gonna say they lost the game, then the game might have already been lost. But it's the Are same. You, you were down, you were down like 27 to seven before that. So it's not like, yeah, um, I, I, I it's, it's sort of at, at the way that game started. I don't know, like, uh, coach trying anything at the end of that quarter to wake his team up. I'm not, you know, it's, it's, uh, well, I've got, I don't have any good options here. So what's the least bad one? Yeah. But I'm going to, spe- speaking, wrong. speaking of least bad options, I'm going to go back to the caps because there's a, there's a lot of fertile ground there. And, and I, this isn't a post modem, post postmortem, even though they are down three, one, but like, I, I think Isaac Okoro was a great flashpoint for this because, Yes, I completely acknowledge. Like Isaac Okoro did the best job guarding Jalen Brunson of any Cavalier. Hardly agree. I think that I think that's very important. And so there are people like, oh, you have to have him on the floor then, and and it's a worthy consideration. I mean, part of your goal, the goal of an NBA game is to score more points than your opponent. You can do that by scoring a lot of points. You can do that by stopping your opponent, and most typically, some combination of the two. However. It is very important to also note that while that is true, Isaac Okoro did the best job on Jalen Brunson, it also fundamentally curtailed Cleveland's offense because the Knicks weren't really respecting him, and Okoro had a couple of cuts. He had just had a couple of made threes overall in the series. And so that is the trade-off because there is no option that is not a trade-off that J.B. Bickerstaff just has to deal with throughout the series. Again, it's it. This is I, I tweeted about this during 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 that game, but it's just like there's no good options. So when like so, it's kind of weird to criticize him for whichever one that that gets picked not working. I agree. I mean, and... you you can say maybe I would have, but it's it's ultimately like something like that. Who plays small forward for the Cavs is something like all of these choices suck, and more likely than not, because these choices suck, whichever one I do is not going to work. Now, does that like and so the counterfactual of, well, it would have been better had he done this thing that he didn't do. Well, that probably would have sucked, too, because that's why they're all bad choices. It's frustrating, but it's also correct. And that's that's kind of the nature of it. And that's part of why 
you know, like, sometimes it, it gets a little bit wrong, but, like, evaluating teams for their playoff viability is an important exercise because you think about, well, how can you get through those things? And I, and I like that you brought up Cleveland's rebounding. It's one of the more striking things that Cleveland, despite having two wonderful big men, and this isn't the strength of those two players' games, but they were below average this year in both offensive and defensive rebounding. And remember, they had Kevin Love on their roster most of this season as well, and they have, theoretically, if they wanted to deploy him, they have Robin Lopez and they have another guy. So to be straight up below average, and part of that is they have small guards, they don't, they're don't. they often pretty small in the 2-3 land as well, but you would think that they would be that they would be that, but it's something that the Knicks, Mitchell Robinson, especially I think deserves a ton of credit, have exploited and the Knicks have found another element of it, which I find so fascinating, which is the Knicks are pushing hard enough on the glass that it is affecting the Cavs' ability to run because they're not securing the rebounds and, and because they have to devote these resources to it. And I mean that's something going back to your book that I mean came up like in the mid range theory. It's just like these frontiers are, are, are moving around a lot, and it's not always static. That's right. Um, also, I mean, there's also there's your favorite thing, feedback loops. Like, the Cavs are not necessarily, like, an up-and-down team. Like, no. Uh, in, in general, I mean, they, they don't have a lot of depth. Uh, they play two bigs. Donovan Mitchell doesn't like to get up and doesn't like to play fast. Um, so that then knowing that that also gives you more license to uh, attack the the offensive glass if you're in New York and then the more you attack the offensive glass the more Cleveland is going to be reticent to run the more you can attack it so so it's almost a uh, a, uh, a, a, a someone I know would say a feedback loop <laughs> um, by the, by the but, way Cleveland 20 set this is unpredictable 22nd in time to shoot after a defensive rebound. 28th overall, though the overall number includes other things like how frequently you generate turnovers and, and other elements, which are more they're more they're more open to the elements. The, the Cavs forced the third most turnovers this year. Sure, but that's I mean the 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 turn live ball turnovers and and uh, um you know running off defensive rebounds are of course very different things and yeah. Um, so yeah, so but I think but uh, to that point though, like in the especially in the fourth quarters of games, I think the depending on how you, you know whether you count uh, team rebounds or not or whatever, um, the the Knicks are are getting about f- somewhere between forty three and forty five percent of available missed shots are ending up back with the Knicks in fourth quarters of games this series. Incredible. Like again, I don't, I don't see how that's how that's coaching. Just, I you know, it's it's that's that's uh, that that's guys. You got to play better. The mighty play better adjustment. Um, I which, I which, by the way, we've seen at times in these playoffs. The the Bucks made it in game in game two, and then decided not to do it in game three. Do you want to, I know you already did it great in Durdoshes. Do you want to use this platform to talk about using Brook Lopez more in the offense? Uh well, he was <laughs> I wrote that and then he wasn't so great in game 3. But sure. I think that but I think that um this is a this is up until game 3 like in 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 kind of the the bud era, uh the 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 
Bucks have done reasonably well with Giannis not playing, in large part in games Giannis doesn't play. Uh, Brooke Lopez gets the ball inside a lot and has scored very effectively because he's seven foot and huge and has good touch and and um, can do some things. And like you know, he's like, oh, I think we all love Bam Adebayo, but just in terms of uh, Brooke is going to be able to get where he wants to go largely on offense in that matchup just because of the size mismatch. Yeah, and then Miami did a wonderful job shutting off the restricted area in particular in game in game three. We'll see what happens. I mean, part of why I've been reluctant to talk about that series right now is because so much is going to change in a matter of hours um, as we record this. So, I, like, but it is I, I saw that and I read your piece. I'm like, yeah, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. You know, when you when you have different options, then you kind of reassess and reprioritize. And it also like one of the ripples, and this has been true for a while with Giannis being out in the playoffs is. It puts more offensively on Drew Holiday's shoulders, and Drew Holiday is a phenomenal player. I would say a deeply underappreciated player to the extent that that even matters. Like underappreciated, like overrated, underrated, overappreciated, underappreciated. Just like they're they're so they're so like ephemeral and esoteric that they don't really matter. But Drew Holiday is one hell of a basketball player. But he's a great basketball player who isn't reliable at creating good shots for himself and others. And so that's a part of why the Bucks have had some real trouble. And Miami knows that and has exploited that better than most. Well, and the flip side of that is, is in this matchup, he's also um, uh, sort of the, some of the, one of the mysteries of Jimmy Butler's career has been um, almost the inconsistency in which he decides I'm going to score tonight. Mm-hmm. He's almost like the, almost like the, uh, the guard version of early career, Nikola Jokic. In, in that regard. Uh, but I think starting in last year's Eastern Conference Finals and through three games of this series, um, you know, game game two is kind of a wipeout, so almost a little bit whatever. But in the games one and three, we've seen very aggressive Jimmy Butler, and Drew is the primary defender there. And, and uh, you know, of course, everyone should be able to give maximal effort on both ends at all times, and you should be a great offensive and defensive player at all times and blah, blah, blah. Uh, here on Earth 1.0, having to do more of one tends to limit your ability to do the other. It does. And the Bucks, you know, it, it's a it's another dynamic. We brought up the Cavs of like the, you know, John Hollander and Nate are calling it the crucible, but like the idea of like certain players just not being playoff viable. Another one is who can actually defend this player. And that that group narrowing for the Bucks on Jimmy Butler puts a lot more on Drew Holiday's shoulders. For sure. I think um I, I think I don't I don't necessarily want to take a victory lap because I take to have to take a massive L for like what I thought Joe Ingles would give them. But Jay Crowder is not a wing anymore. He's a four. I think that's true. I think that's and, completely fair. And that is uh for considering that he was kind of acquired to be the guy that who could be the the big wing defender to guard physical offensive, you know, wings. That's 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 a problem, but it was a it's a I think a very foreseeable problem. I I, I think we can I don't know if this will formally end it, but one of the last things I want to discuss is actually the first thing I discussed with your former Covadimus co-host Jared Dubin last week, which was I we can include the Bucks if you want to. I mean, they're the most tenuous thing here because of Giannis's availability. How have the first nine days of the playoffs affected your assessment of the title picture? Um, 
little more worried about the Bucks, not because I think they're going to lose the first round. I was for a team that like one of their calling cards is sort of uh, consistency, workaday professionalism. Uh, no, almost no showing game three was was kind of eye opening. Um, I think the Nuggets have, uh, you know, they they dropped game four. That game was like kind of right there and and minnesota made a bunch of jump shots and, and played well down the stretch but i think they the nuggets played well enough to win that game um like the nuggets have uh, certainly not gone backwards in my estimation they've maybe even improved uh it's possible and this very much hurts me to say it's possible we've underestimated the lakers <laughs> although i mean I'll, although i think that they are getting a with kind of the version of the grizzlies that has shown up I think they're they've had a very kind first round and um I I uh be interesting to see the degree to which Rui Hachimura is if they do advance how much he will wish it was a they had only played one series um after series number 2 because uh you kind of you want to bank that series where you shoot like you know 59% from 3 or whatever when you're going into your free agency instead of having to do an, another series where the 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 uh uh the old regression to the mean might slap you in the face pretty hard yeah i, I that makes a lot of sense and for me like this was largely true, you know, recorded before the weekend with, with Jared, was the questions about, if we're talking narrowly about the championship itself, I think I had a bunch of teams that's like, well, you know, I could see it if things work really well. And, like, the Clippers are always kind of in that camp. The They were low-end, though, especially with the PG injury. The Suns, it was, like, you know, the theory of the case. Like, I mean, the West is wide open, and, like, I would say the Grizzlies were in that group for me where I didn't quite see it, but it was with the injuries, but the possibility, and, like, the Warriors and the Cavs, you know, it's like, well, they're so good in net rating and everything else like that. And I think a lot of those have fallen by the wayside. And I think you're writing the Grizzlies off a little too readily. To win the championship? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'd, I mean, I'd be interested, I mean, no, I'd be interested in your case here. As a viable championship team. I mean, I, I think obviously they have to turn this series around. Um, uh, but um, I think that, you know, considering they, they played, you know, with, with a hurt and missing jaw for uh, a game. And, and basically after they, they kind of showed up to game three, I think they, was it safe, safe to say they outplayed the Lakers the last three quarters of that game? Um, and, I but I think they, they're still, I think we saw from jaw, they still have kind of the best player punchers chance. Uh, they can guard when, when the mood suits them. I think um, they've been hurt a little bit by not getting great jump shooting from their shooters, but I think those are temporary rather than permanent things. Um, now, I, I would say that my that in part because of their the likelihood that they'll lose this series and also uh, how this series has kind of illustrated what some of their weaknesses are. I think you downrate them as a as a championship contender, but I think I think you. Um, you don't eliminate them. You just realize that some of their equity has already been taken by the Lakers. It and, has. Other than that, and other than that, like nobody has really changed my opinion of them that much. Like the Clippers with Kawhi hurt, that that probably eliminates them. But that doesn't change like the clip. I think we saw in the first couple of games, the Clippers with Kawhi were 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 at least a chip in a chair. Yes, and I, I would say I feel better about having that vague optimism about them than I do about the Cavs, where it was like the, I'll believe it when I see it, and it, you know, the Knicks have played extremely well, and I want to give the Knicks a lot of credit, but Cleveland, they, that that seems like if it's going to come, it's going to be in a future year, not in this year, and that's... Do we do like, do we, do we we give the Knicks a real chance against any of Celtics, Bucks, 
Sixers, assuming health. I so I brought this up before um, in terms of I think this was Nets Sixers, where it's like I could see them making every game competitive, but that doesn't mean I expect them to win a, win the series against any of those teams. Health, you know, health being the important caveat. Right. Um, and and I like like you know the Knicks in some degree have done something similar to the to the Kings of like understanding where their competitive advantages are. They're playing super hard. They're doing all that. But those um, I'm trying to remember who was bringing this up with me. But I thought it was such a good point. It's like oh oh that's actually so they'll go back to a soccer context. Um, I was reading a great article on ESPN about Wrexham, and it was this idea that there are things you can do in the lower levels that really help your chances of winning. And, you know, it's spending more facilities, players, all that type of stuff. But once you get into the higher levels, the team's already doing that. So you can't really, then you have to do all these other things. I think Did that's... you just compare Jalen Brunson to Paul Mullen? Sort of. I'm here for that. Because I'm here for that. As a... <laughs> sort of. I mean, and so the idea is that I think the Knicks, like they're... In, in a way, they're a, a worthy best-of-the-rest team, but when you're facing those, like, Champions League-level squads, it's really, really hard to beat them if your talent level is the same as theirs. Yeah. I mean, I think one could even, if one is going to stick with soccer, one could go to the FA Cup semi on Sunday where, you know, it was a, the, just the, the level of players Manchester United could, could bring on as subs compared to the level of players Brighton could uh, was, it was, like, there was like, oh, yeah, there's a reason one of these is is like one of the five biggest clubs in the world and the other one is is a plucky upstart yeah i think that's fair and i i super impressed with what the knicks have done top to bottom thibodeau the the players involved i mean mitchell robinson has been an absolute beast in the series rj barrett has found it the last two games and cleveland you know at, at certain times they help facilitate that but rj barrett ran through that door which which i've never been the biggest fan you've never been the biggest fan but it's good to see him do well and if they're facing a you know a shorthanded version of the Bucks or the Heat in the next round, well, yeah, that that certainly changes the conversation, and we'll cross the bridge when we get there. And I think that ties in with another team, another perspective series that we haven't discussed is I'm I was already concerned about how the Sixers matched up with the Celtics. Like that's just something that you know, like how they do it defensively. Offensively, the Celtics have have very different personnel. They don't have to be as gimmicky as the Nets just due to the kind of some of the size constraints. And if Joel Embiid is anything less than 90%, it's going to be brutal for the Sixers to be viable in that series. Yeah, I think that's right. Although I'm I'm, I'm very intrigued by... uh, Sort of the a, a X factor possibility in that series is uh, uh, Tyrese Maxey and Derek White. Mm-hmm. That's kind of that's kind of the the uh, the nerd off uh, <laughs> the hips the hipster matchup of the second of the potential but, second. But, by the way, the idea that so like this is something that's come up a lot when they are doing position rankings and everything that Maxey is a fundamentally different and I would say better player than the like pool. Simon's hero group, if you want to even put those guys together. Like, I think that's gotten bolstered by the playoffs so far. Oh, I mean, I think that was, yeah. I mean, I think that is that is done and dusted. Yeah. Uh, anything else that is, I mean, do you want to talk anything about C- Celtic Sixers? I mean, it, 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 there is that, I mean, you're right that the Maxi White thing will be absolutely fascinating. Uh, no, I think, I mean, we'll, we'll see how much of the beat injury was um, them covering for wanting to rest him for game four and how much of it is him actually being hurt. 
I'm maybe I'm being overly cynical, but like there's a strong whiff of yeah, he'll be fine. He just can't go in game four. Was kind of the original. Oh yeah, and then but Doc saying the thing about how it'd be fifty. He at that time it's fifty fifty that he starts the next series. That's very yeah. Bizarre. Well, I mean, I think that's a that's a, oh they sussed us out. <laughs> you know, um, I like it's not it, if we're one wanting to be like conspiratorial about it. I, it's not. I don't think that's a stretch because that's not that is not what they that is not what Doc said when he first missed the game. Let's put it that way. Very, very true. Um, is there anything I, I know like you you have thoughts on lots of things you've been doing great work on playback and on the athletic and in pod, pods as well and everything else. Is there any thread that you think we haven't discussed that's worth discussing? Um, I don't think so. I think we kind of hit on it's sort of fascinating um, to wonder about uh, again, assuming assuming the Knicks win this series, but are outclassed in the next round. The team building challenges facing both New York and Cleveland are pretty fascinating, especially when you consider Cleveland's comparative lack of flexibility and the Knicks having a little bit more like do you how much pressure does that put on you to actually use it or do you kind of save some of that ammunition for later on? Yeah, I mean, Leon Rose has some decisions from him. The decisions, I think, are better than they than we at least that I thought they were going to be at at certain points. But they are still difficult ones to be sure. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And then for Cleveland, it's like, all right, you don't want to you don't want to go crazy on one playoff series. But you know, the the sort of the the it, it, it's not like any of the questions we had about the two bigs and the two small guards either each part separately or that 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 four person collectively. I don't think I don't think we can say that any of those have been answered in the positive in this series. Also, a prototypical example of defining success, uh, like what does this team want to be, and and where the rubber meets the road on that is always what financial, what pick, all that kind of stuff. Assets are you willing to give up to make it happen? And I mean, it certainly appears that Donovan Mitchell's first season there has gone well, and by a lot of the conventional measures, including how how well I mean the Cavs finished the year second in Queen the Glass net rating. But if they get knocked out in the first round, remember that we're a, you know let's call it I mean, we're two seasons away. There, so Donovan Mitchell has two full seasons left after this year on his contract, then has a player option. But they can be touching base, and I mean, he's an, he's a central part of their team right now. And so, how does he perceive this? Is in many ways as important as how ownership and how Kobe Altman sees it. Oh, oh is is it time to start talking about who's going to request? No, it's not. No. No, let's not do that. Let's I mean, other than Trey, other than yeah. Trey Young, it's not time to. <laughs> Oh boy. Uh, yeah. Um, I think that's probably that it would be disrespectful to have that conversation uh, until they actually lose. And, you know, I'm all about disrespecting certain teams, but like, let's not do that now. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, and this isn't the time for it. Uh, I've, I've thought about this in different capacities of like, not the next kind of Trey Young type of player that gets, that becomes available, but the next like Jalen Brown, like versatile wing. Like, and then it's also, you get into the arguments of like, does OG and Anobi count? Does Mikhail Bridges yeah. count? Like all, all those, like, because. So Jalen Brown, if it, if this doesn't go the right way for the Celtics, basically, I mean, I mean, maybe there aren't that many. Like that's that's yeah. a part of this, and that that's yeah. the the thing that is both justifiable about where Cleveland ended up with the small forward thing, but also so kind of frustrating is the idea of like, well, the thing you need the most is the single most scarce thing around, and that's a problem. Like that, it it makes it a a more intractable situation unless they. I'm going to say not unless they draft super well, but honestly, like that player is not going to be ready to contribute either way. 
No, they, I mean, we, I think you're as, as, as important as it is to set your sights high. Like, I don't think, I don't think we think the, the Cavs need an all-star there. I think no. like they need like, you know, Dorian Finney-Smith, Cam Johnson, like that level of player. Like that's a, a, a pretty good player. Doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a superstar. It just has to be a guy who can defend well, hit shots and stay on the floor. Like just that is a, you know, is, is sort of filling the hole that they have there right now. They have guys, they have guys individually who can do all of those things and collectively none. I will, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of end this. You brought him up at one point that I, my residual bitterness that the Grizzlies had, didn't put themselves in any positions to upgrade or to, to do any other anything other than lean on Dylan Brooks, that that was going to come back to hurt them. I would say my stock in that is is going on the upswing right now. Yeah, I mean, there's there's sort of the pieces to that. Like, I think that well, I I did appreciate them. I think a, a the the counterpoint, of course, is is always Dallas in terms of teams not like getting too wedded to their role players and not willing to cycle kind of you know spots eight through four three five whatever on their roster so i think that that memphis preemptively starting to do that i think was not unwise i think that melton may have been the wrong player to do that with but they've also i mean the fact that they basically struck out with getting development or contributions from any of the possible successors there is i mean maybe it's it's failure of drafting play failure of development or maybe it's just bad luck um could easily you know. be both yeah I've, you know, like, organizational hubris is something that I've become fascinated with. I mean, I bring up Smilagich all the time in this. I mean, and that was a smaller end asset, but the idea... I, I don't of, think this is, I don't think this is, I don't think this is a, a hubristic error. I think this is, like, maybe a error of judgment in trying to execute on a, on a sensible, longer-term, sustainable vision. Interesting. I think... There is there is absolutely a rationale for that. I just I look at the the flexibility that they had, both in terms of financial, like they could have gone in very different directions, and they they had the resources should they have wanted to. But the other part of that is a the players that you're looking at that field is extremely narrow. Like I think that's that's it's an important part of this. It's like and Dylan Brooks helped them a lot this year. Like that's it's not a circumstance where like oh he's obviously trash and all these other guys are great. No, not that at all. And also, like, those other, like, especially if it's a trade, which pretty much in all these circumstances it was, they could have gotten into certain, like, sign-in trade markets, they could have cleared cap space, they could have done some of that other stuff. Like, they need to play ball, and there, there's some reporting out there that they tried and other teams weren't as interested, and that's a part of this, too. Yeah, but, and also it's like, okay, these are the options on the table. One of them is... Um, we think that between Zaire Williams and David Roddy and Jake Laravia and John Conchar and whoever else will get enough from that spot to to for it to be okay and and you know that in any of these are gambles and and any of the but, trades would have been gambles too and just the the one that they chose hasn't worked out but that doesn't again it's not to I don't I'm not trying to like be overly defensive of a team or something it's just you know these are hard choices and sometimes they don't go in your favor even if you make what was theoretically the best choice and all that said i still probably were i them have wanted to keep d'anthony melton because i think d'anthony melton's really good but you know your mileage may vary and just because a a bet that you disagreed with doesn't work or a bet that you agreed with does doesn't necessarily mean it was the correct decision like that that's a part right. of what makes this also so fun right. and so fascinating is the idea that and like i mean that the, that goes back to what we we're talking about with jb bickerstaff before it's like 
these are all complicated choices. These are all hard choices. And the we don't always have full information, but you know, you, you end up with one thing on the ground and we evaluate that for what it is and then you move forward. For sure. Well, thank you so much for taking time. Pleasure as always, my friend. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Seth Partnow for taking the time to come on. You can check out his great work at The Athletic. You can read The Ridge-Range Theory, which if you have not, I highly, highly recommend it. You can also listen to the Nerdish Road podcast. Seth's also doing some playbacks with the great Moda Keel, who of course has been on Real GM Radio as well. You can check all of those out. And you can follow Seth on Twitter at Seth Partnow, S-E-T-H-P-A-R-T-N-O-W, if you do not already. If you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. You can subscribe, download every episode that's great for Real GM Radio because episodes come out when I'm available, when guests are available. There's no rhyme, specific rhyme or reason to it as, as best I can describe it. And you can also tell other people about the show, and that's the rating and review, and just help saying, hey, this is this is a good episode, something else. that really do appreciate that. But the most important thing you can do for Real GM Radio and any other podcast that has them is to check out our sponsors. For us, that is FanDuel, fanduel.com slash Boston, and you get new customers in Massachusetts get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when they place their first $5 bet, which is awesome. And you can also check out my other work. Nate Duncan and I are going strong with Dunked On and Dunked On Prime. So thrilled to have Seth as a part of Dunked On Prime, of course, as well. He's doing these nerd noshes. I believe it's roughly around three times a week. Really good stuff. I referenced them numerous times during the pod. You probably heard it there. And we're doing playbacks for couple times a week. It's a little bit more limited when we're going to games in person. We'll see how long that lasts, but we have, we'll be doing, you know, a couple of weeks. You can check our, check our Twitter handles, or you can just be on that, on that playback page. It's a single page that we're going to. I can't, the URL is a little bit complicated, but we tweeted out enough that you can find it there. You can also check out my written work at The Athletic. I am working on a new piece. I don't know how soon it's going to be ready because I think it's going to be long, and that means it'll also take a while in editorial when I actually get my first draft in, which is not yet. Um, you can also reach out to me, feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. NBA at gmail.com is the way to get to me. If you take the time to write it, I will read it. That is an absolute promise. I don't promise necessarily get back to you. I'm, I'm a little bit busy. As many of you know, I just got off of paternity leave. And when you get off of paternity leave, that means that you're still a father, which is great, but it does mean I have a little less time. So that is all for now. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.